All right, Exodus chapter 14, please, in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 14. We've been talking about the great stories of the Old Testament. Today we're going to talk about one of the greatest of the great, the parting of the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of the Bible in your hand, there's one in the seat in front of you, I hope. You're welcome to follow along there, and I encourage you to do just that. And uh, actually, if you don't own a Bible and would like to take that one with you, you're welcome uh, to do that as well as our gift to you. Exodus chapter 14, let's start reading right there in verse number 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry land through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it, became, so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. 
and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant, Moses. Well, Father, we're so thankful for your word. And we're thankful, Lord, that this true story, this factual historical account is included for our, uh, our help here today. And I pray that as we look at it, we'd recognize the wonderful truths that are herein. Such an important and pivotal event in the history of the children of Israel, but so much application also for us. And so teach us today, I pray. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to say the things I ought and nothing else. I pray today, Father, that uh, you would forgive any sin, any, uh, anything that would hinder my ability to, uh, to teach and preach today. And just use this time. And I pray, Lord, not only that you'd fill me with your spirit, but all of us, that you'd fill us all with your spirit that we might hear, that we might receive, that we might accept the word of God and act upon it. And I uh, just pray, Lord, that you'd, uh, you'd work. Do something in our hearts today, something great and something mighty. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the children of Israel had uh, been delivered from slavery in Egypt by some fantastic Amazing things. God had sent Moses. We started to talk about that last week in the burning bush experience. God had sent Moses to demand that Pharaoh release the children of Israel and let them go. Pharaoh had refused. And so God had unleashed a series of calamitous judgments upon them. The ten plagues of Egypt. uh, Judgments such as the world had never seen. And uh, probably will not see again until we come to the tribulation uh, time. Time prevents giving any details of those things, and you can read about them on your own, but uh, uh, let me just mention what they were. God turned their water into blood. God sent frogs to cover their land. He plagued them with lice and with flies. He destroyed their livestock. He sent a plague of boils upon the people of Egypt. He destroyed their crops and possessions with hail and then finished off what remained of their crops with locusts. He plunged them into darkness, and finally he killed the firstborn of every Egyptian household. You can read all about that in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. Just before that tenth and final plague, the, the, the killing of the firstborn, God had instructed Moses to institute the Passover observance, and that's also important. We don't have time to talk about that today. But the children of Israel were instructed to sacrifice a lamb. They were to place some of its blood on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their homes. And every house so covered by the blood, when the angel of the Lord came through, to destroy the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, every house where the blood was there uh, would be spared that devastating judgment. The Lord saw the blood and passed over the 
those homes. But in every Egyptian household, every household that was not covered by the blood, somebody was dead. And that included Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh, in his grief and in his astonishment, finally let the children of Israel go. And that brings us to chapter 14 and where we're at here this morning in our text at the Red Sea. And so I want to examine this passage just a little bit today, and I want to look at three different things. First of all, I I want to do what we've kind of been doing, which is let's look at what happened. Let's kind of go through and and just step down through uh, exactly what happened here and tell the story. Uh, But then I want us to notice just a few general applications that I think we we dare not ignore, even though I don't want to spend time on them. But finally, there's a big one. There's a big application I want us to look at, which I hope will be very helpful to all of us. So first of all, let's look at the account. What happened here? When we get to Exodus chapter 14, the newly freed Israelites are, are, are camping, and they're camping with their backs to the sea. The body of water is called the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 18, but uh, if you read anything about this, you know that there is some discussion amongst people as to where this crossing actually took place, because the actual words used here are translated Sea of Reeds. Some people have seized upon that and tried to water down the account and say that the children of Israel didn't really cross the Red Sea. They crossed some marshy area where they found a little high spot in it and they just walked across uh, like a little sandbar or something like that. But, you know, anytime people try to water down the Word of God, you know what they do? They make idiots of themselves. They make fools of themselves. For wherever they crossed, it was deep enough to drown the entirety of the Egyptian army. And so it wasn't just a little marshy place. Matter of fact, verse number 8 tells me that not one of the Egyptian uh, soldiers remained. So we may not know exactly where it, where it occurred at the Red Sea. We, we cannot say that. The Scripture is not clear about that. The Holy Spirit did not see fit to clarify that first in the text. But we know it was the sea. We know it was deep. We know it was called the Red Sea. And so I think that it's pretty clear that's where it was. So Pharaoh had rethought the situation. And he decided he'd been in error to let the Israelites go, and so he mustered his army in all of its might, and he went after them. And suddenly the the Israelites found themselves pinned between the sea and this advancing army with no place to go. According to verses 10 through 12, the children of Israel, upon seeing this intimidating foe, were afraid. They feared greatly. They complained loudly, apparently forgetting the amazing things that had happened just uh, days before, up to this point, Moses assuaged their fears. Moses told them to watch and see what God was going to do. And then he said something amazing in verse 14. He said, God will fight for you. I love that. God will fight for you. God told Moses to hold his staff out over the water, verse 16. And when, we got, when Moses did so, God unleashed this mighty wind which pushed back the water. Uh, such that there was a dry roadway through its midst, verse number 21. And the children of Israel just walked across. They just walked across on dry land. Now, according to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37, there were about 600,000 men who left Israel, or Egypt uh, when they were set free. Men, it says, besides children, implied in that is besides women and children. So 600,000 men besides women and children. So here's what that means. That means that at this point there was probably 2 million or so people in this crowd. That doesn't count their livestock. It doesn't count all their stuff. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians. They were laden with stuff. You've seen the pictures of the caravan that's supposedly coming up through Mexico? A few thousand people? 
When you see the pictures of that, doesn't it look like it just goes on forever? And yet, think about a crowd. That was that's a few thousand people. Think about two million people. How big of a crowd this was. And they just, they just walked across the sea. It had to be quite a sea and quite a road through the sea to accommodate a crowd like that. Well, from the time the Israelites had left Egypt, God had gone before them on their journey in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That pillar, referred to as the angel of God, uh, up to this point had led them. It had been their guide. Now it goes around behind them, positions itself between them and the army, and it now becomes their guardian and their protector. Until they were safely across, the army was held at bay and could not get to them. And then once the Israelites were well across, God must have lifted the pillar out of the way for the Egyptians charged full force into the sea and began to pursue the Israelites across. And I, I'm always amazed at that thought. How did, how did, how did uh, Pharaoh have that kind of control over his men that he could get them to do a thing like that, go into that amazing sea? But yet they did, full force into it, hot pursuit. But the Lord whom Moses had said would fight for his people, did just that. And I think he did it with a little bit of mischief. I don't know if you see that or not. But he started knocking the wheels off of their chariots. He started getting them stuck in the mud. I think he was having a little fun with the Egyptians at that particular point. And the Egyptians sensed there was, these were not ordinary difficulties, and they attempted to flee. And God told Moses one more time. Now he's on the other side of the sea. He says, one more time, raise that staff. And this time, when he did so, the wind ceased. The waters returned, and the entire Egyptian army was drowned. Verse number 27. I want you to notice what it says in verse number 28. Very clear. It says, not so much as one of them remained. You see that? Not so much as one of them remained. As I was studying this particular passage, I looked in various commentaries, as I oftentimes do. I came across a comment that that just drove me crazy. Uh, Here's what it said. It said, as the sun rises, the Egyptians have either perished or returned. The problem has been taken away. And this is a commentator that I usually like, and I've read his stuff before, and I thought it was okay. He's clearly wrong there. There's nothing in the Scripture that allows for the fact that the Egyptians have returned. None of them returned. Every single one of them was destroyed. And it just reminded me of the fact that we hold in our hands the Bible, which is the only book we can trust 100%. The Bible, which is the only infallible and perfect Word of God. The Bible, which is the only book that uh, does not have uh, fallible men who are the ones who are responsible for it. So everything else we have to compare to the Word of God. And I was just reminded of that. Well, so the result, the Lord was glorified both in Egypt and in Israel, and his people believed in verse 31. They saw what God had done for them, just as he had promised in verse 13, and they feared. That's a right response. Who was just talking about fearing? Was that you, brother? They feared. That was a right response. And they believed. That was another right response. And so that's what happened. And mark it down, it happened. This is not just a fable. This is history. This is true. This actually happened, just as was said here. Well, so that's what happened. Let's talk a little bit about some lessons that we can learn. I just want to mention three, I think I have down here, three general observations, which are important enough for me to mention, but I don't want to spend any time on them. Uh, Just We'll toss them out there and you can think about them. Look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice that God led the Israelites into this. God led them. He put them in this predicament. He led them to the place by the sea, knowing that all this was going to happen. And it's a reminder to us, we won't spend time, but there's a reminder to us that 
God may similarly lead us into hard situations and trials. He may test us for whatever his purposes are to strengthen us, to help us. Any of the older believers among us can no doubt attest to such times when God did something that seemed painful. But now they look back on it and they can see that God was actually working something good in their life, something helpful. I'm reminded of something I heard at a Voice of the Martyrs conference one time. One of the preachers said, God will not protect us from that which will perfect us. And I think that's a lesson that we see here. So God led the Israelites into this. It's also interesting to note that God used Pharaoh in this. He used Pharaoh. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, verse number 8. Do we not sometimes wonder why certain people are in positions of authority? Do you not wonder that? We've just come through a ridiculous election period in this country. And frankly, we cannot look at Washington most of the time without recognizing that most of the people, maybe most is too strong, let's say some of the people, are idiots. Do we not have to admit that sometimes? And sometimes we have to go even further than that and say that they're just plainly evil. There are people in positions of authority in our country, a Christian country supposedly, that are just evil. Why are they there? Why does God allow such in positions of power? And I think here we see in Pharaoh that God uses a wicked leader to accomplish his will in the lives of his people. When we're tempted to despair over the wickedness in high places, let's remember Pharaoh. God put him there. And he did so because he had a plan to rescue his people. Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And, of course, we also see something else in Pharaoh, too, don't we? We see that when God's purposes are accomplished with such a wicked leader, judgment is coming. And that ought to also encourage us. Just as God leads his people to safety, he leads their enemies to their destruction. One other general observation, and then I'm going to talk about the big one. This one's in verses 10 through 12. God delivered the people even when they were weak in faith. Verses 10 through 12 are mind-boggling, aren't they? Mind-boggling. How, how could these Israelites have, have thought the way they did after what they had just seen, after all that they had seen in, is, in, in Egypt, the ten plagues? That was an astonishing thing that has never been seen like that in the world before or since. And yet here they are, throwing up their hands in worry at this most recent situation. It does seem mind-boggling until we consider just how it pictures so many of us. We sing God's praises on Sunday and then fear God's enemies on Monday. Uh, we just like them. No matter how many times and in how many ways we've seen God's deliverance, we trust what we see with our eyes and what we hear with our ears more. Warren Wiersbe said, Fear and faith cannot dwell in the same heart. If we trust God, we need not be afraid. Amazingly, too often we are. And we're just like these find ourselves walking by sight and not by faith. And I don't know about you, but it encourages me when I see that God still delivered these people in spite of the weakness of their faith. Well, those are a few general observations, and you can study those more on your own. And there's, there's probably some others in there that might speak to you, but I, I want to talk about the main lesson, what I think is the main lesson from this passage, the biggie. So 
the one that is most important, and it's in verses 13 through 15. Look at verses 13 through 15, and I'm telling you, you ought to have that circled and underlined and asterisked and everything you can do to mark these passages in your Bible. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Stand still, he said. The Lord will fight for you. Some people have called that thought. The Lord will fight for you. The divine warrior motif. God is the divine warrior who fights for us. And we see it all throughout the Bible. Moses would later say in Deuteronomy chapter 28, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Nehemiah would one day rally his troops with, uh, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Isaiah would prophesy, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Zechariah the prophet would write, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. David. The young shepherd would one day find himself looking up at Goliath and shouting to him in triumph. And I love what he said here. He said, this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. Just as the children of Israel were encouraged to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish. There are times in our lives when we need to sit still and watch God work. We need to let him fight for us. I'm sure I've told you of a particular elders meeting that we had some years ago. It's been quite a few years ago now. Elders and I were wrestling over some issue. I don't mean we were fighting amongst ourselves. We were just trying to deal with a problem in the church that we couldn't quite figure out what to do. And then we were haranguing back and forth over it. After a period of time, one of the elders, who had been silent up until that point, looked at us and said, Are we really not going to let God work here? We were trying to figure out a solution, but what he was saying was, we need to stand still and let God work, and let God figure out the solution. And I think that's a good application, and that's a good thought for us. Of course, sadly, most of us, many Christians at least, don't have any problem with sitting still. Many of us are more than happy to let somebody else work while we sit, are we not, to wait for God interminably. Ask some believer who once served faithfully why they, no, why they no longer do so. You'll often hear things like, well, I just don't feel dead. Or, I'm waiting on the Lord's leading. You know what I have to say about that? You ready? This is spiritual. Hogwash. That's hogwash. That's all it is. Most of the time, such believers are just lazy or backslid or lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And they're sitting on their hands instead of serving their God. That's not what Moses is talking about here when he's uh, told to sit still and watch for God to work. There may be times when sitting and waiting for God to fight for us is right. But somewhere, sometime, it becomes true that we need to get off our knees and on our feet and move forward. That's the next thing God said in verse number 15. God told Moses that the time for praying and sitting and watching was over. It was a time for action time to move, and it was a time to move forward. Now, I find that an interesting verse, 
verse number 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. I wonder about God's words to Moses here. Why do you cry to me? See, it would be a contradiction of everything that I think I know about prayer in the Bible to think God was rebuking the act of prayer there. I can't believe God was rebuking you for praying. It doesn't make any sense to me. The second half of the verse is simple enough to interpret. God is telling him to get the people moving. Forward march. But the first part, why are you crying out to me? Why do you cry to me? Was God saying there, why do you cry to me, Moses? If that's the case, that would, be, that would seem unlikely. For who else would God want Moses to cry out to? Was he saying, why do you cry to me, Moses? That would seem unlikely, because that would be, as we said earlier, a rebuke of the whole idea of prayer. But what if God was saying, why do you cry to me, Moses? Now, remember, all the children of Israel are crying. Is he saying, why do you cry to me, Moses? Might indicate that even though Moses was believing and openly and rallying his people to believe and watch what God was going to do, that in his heart of hearts, he was saying, dear God, what are we going to do? Maybe. I don't know. I can't be, I can't, I can't clear. The Bible is not really clear there. Most seem to take the view that God was simply telling Moses the time of praying was over and the time for action was upon him. Charles Spurgeon took that view. And so if Spurgeon said it, it must be true. Let me read you what he had to say. He said, why are you crying out to me? Spiritual people in their distresses turn at once to prayer, even as the stag when hunted takes to flight. Prayer is a never failing resort. It is sure to bring a blessing with it. Even apart from the answer to our supplications, the exercise of prayer is healthy to the person engaged in it. Far be it from me ever to say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. We may think that a hard saying, but by text is to the point. Moses prayed that God would deliver his people. But the Lord said to him, Why are you crying out to me? As much as to say this is not the time for prayer, it is the time for actions. Tell the Israelites to break camp. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action, and having asked God's guidance and having received divine power to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. Whatever God was telling Moses in the first part, There's absolutely no doubt what he was telling him in the second part. It's time to move. Move them out. My wife, Beth, was very fond of a saying. She used to quote it often. I don't know where she heard it or if she made it up. But she used to like to say, God will not steer a parked car. And I think it's true. car needs to be moving in order to get direction. And you and I can't sit still forever and then wonder why God isn't giving direction. We need to move. My mother, one time, was describing a physical problem that she was experiencing and how she had solved this problem by starting some exercise regimen. And thereafter, she had become, just like so many do, who do this sort of thing, a zealot for physical exercise. And so she was beating me up about it one day because I'm great at physical exercise, as you can see. But uh, she said this. She said, our bodies were meant to be moving, not sitting. Amen. We need to move. 
Paul and Timothy and Silas were movers. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Acts 16. They tried going one place, God stopped them. They tried another direction, God said, not that way. Undeterred, they continued moving until they found the direction he wanted them to go. Go to Macedonia. There are just so many clear instructions in the Bible that we should be obeying and acting upon. Clear instructions that we ought not to be praying about. The time for praying is over. We simply need to be moving and obeying. I'll never forget the man who, who attended this church some years ago, and uh, he decided he wanted to join the church. And so I told him, okay, that's wonderful. I said, we have two requirements for someone that would join this church. Number one, you need to be uh, born again. You need to have been saved you know, uh, by placing your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, you need to have been baptized by immersion to testify to that belief. Well, he walked at that. He didn't want to get baptized. And when I pressed him on it, I said, well, why don't you want to be baptized? He said, because I just don't feel led to be baptized. I don't believe the Lord is leading me to be baptized. Well, he said it before, and I'll say it again. Hogwash. That's absolutely not true. The Bible clearly says that those who gladly received his word were baptized in Acts 2.41. Baptism is clearly taught as the first step of obedience for every believer in the Bible. This man could have been honest and said he hated water. He could have been honest and said, I don't want to stand up in front of people dripping wet. Those things would have at least been honest. But to say he wasn't led was a lie because the Bible had led him. We are led by the word of God, and we have no excuse for disobedience. God had led him and leads us all through his word. If the Bible says do something, the time for praying is over. The time for moving is upon us. But maybe your heart is saying, Pastor, I'm willing to move, and I want to move. But I seem faced with a wall of opposition. And here's the glorious truth of this. God will make a way. God will make a way. Verse number 16. What a wonderful truth. You may not see it now. It may seem that you are faced with insurmountable obstacles. And certainly that was the case with the children of Israel. Who has ever been faced with a greater obstacle than them in that particular situation? But God said, move. And then he made a way. A way none of them could have imagined. A dry road. We learned recently of Noah. God made a way for him and his family, an ark that carried him safely across the sea and deposited him safely on the top of Mount Ararat. We learned recently of Abraham, who faced the test of his life when God commanded him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Impossible test. And yet God made a way. He provided a lamb to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Daniel knew that obedience to God meant worshiping God and God alone, refusing to bow to the king's idol. He knew that moving in that direction meant death, for the king had decreed any who refused to worship his idol would be thrown to the lions. But Daniel obeyed God. He worshiped God. He waited on God, even to the point of actually being thrown to the lions. And God made a way, a way nobody could have foreseen. He sent his angel to sit with Daniel and keep those lions from harming him. David knew that somebody had to stop the Philistines and Goliath 
from destroying the people of God. Nobody else was stepping up, and so he bravely did. He wasn't a soldier. He was a shepherd. He wasn't armed with military weaponry. He was armed with a slingshot and a rock. And yet the Bible says that when he faced Goliath, he left all the questions to God, and he ran forward to Goliath. I love that it uses that picture. He ran forward to him, and God made a way, directing that little stone with deadly accuracy. And, of course, the greatest example of it all is our Lord Jesus Christ. All mankind died in Adam. All of us inherited his sin nature and the judgment of death that came with it. We all sinned, the Bible says, and therefore there was no hope for any of us. But God made a way. Just as he provided a lamb in Isaac's place, just as he provided an ark to carry Noah to safety, just as he opened a dry path through the sea for the children of Israel, he made a way for you and me. Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the way out. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John chapter 10, verse number 3. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God made a way. And whatever it is that you're facing today, my friend, God has a way. A way out. If you're not yet born again, he has made a way for you to be saved, to be forgiven, to be made whole forever. And if you are saved, but facing some obstacle or trial, he'll make a way for you too. It doesn't matter what you're facing. God will make a way. But you've got to quit sitting. And you have to move. Are you willing to do that? Father God, we're thankful for this glorious story. I pray that it speaks to our hearts. I pray that as we think through the implications of what you did here uh, in this miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea, I pray, Father, we'll see how it so wonderfully pictures what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you've made a way that we might be saved. And you make a way for anything that we might be going through in our lives. So I pray today, Lord, if there's anybody here who needs something from you this morning related to these things, I pray that as we sing our closing song, uh, they'll know the altar is open. They can come. They can pray. There are those who will pray with them. If there are some here today who don't know you as Savior and want to know more about uh, how how to be born again, how to uh, come to Christ, I pray that this day they'd step out, they'd move, they'd come forward, and they'd let someone pray with them. If there are Christians who need to come, uh, just deal with some other issue in their life. Whatever the needs might be, Lord, we're going to sing. I pray you'll work in our hearts. Bless this closing song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.